My guests today are Chris Yelland and Brendan Slade. Both are involved with Alta's energy portfolio. Chris Yelland is, of course, an energy expert, analyst. And Brendan, you are at the head of Alta's legal matters concerning energy. Welcome and thank you for making time to speak to me. Thank you, Ilsa. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to talk about these crucial issues. Okay, we've just gone through weeks of the worst load shedding this country has ever seen. Am I correct in saying this was the worst ever, Chris? Well, shall we say it was the worst for the longest time. We have had stage six before, uh, but um, I think this bout of load shedding uh, has gone on for significantly longer. And uh, so we feel it more. Okay, what we now need to know is the presidency has promised a a solution to this power crisis. Um, In your view, how long will it take SA to rid itself of load shedding and what needs to be done? We're going to discuss the role of government as well as the private sector. But can we start here? If somebody in the presidency brings out a formal plan today, when can we uh, expect load shedding to be something of the past? Well, of course, we haven't seen exactly what the presidency has to say, so it's hard to know uh, what the presidency's plan uh, and its timing uh, could achieve. Uh, but uh, there's no doubt in my mind, um, and if we've seen, we've seen also from the work of the of the National Planning Commission, that there are indeed solutions um, that can start immediately, and um, if we follow through on these plans we can end load shedding within two years uh, and really that is the the objective to end load shedding fast uh, we it's not a case of that we must wait two years before we will see any progress there will be progress along the way uh, but we need to start now we need to work on it and if you can see what other countries have done in one year for example vietnam delivered 9,000 megawatts of solar PV in the residential and commercial sector alone, Um, we can solve this problem and we can make a big difference even in one year. Talk us through those uh, solutions that you have in mind. I believe there's a whole team of people that have combined expertise to help the NPC to find a solution. Please talk us through that. Well, there have been a number of uh, suggestions. Uh, Eskom itself has actually called for constructive proposals to end load shedding fast. Uh, It conducted a series of roundtables not so long ago uh, with energy experts to solicit their input and suggestions. And um, I think it's welcoming constructive proposals that are solution-based. So we've seen a number of associations, industry associations, come forward with plans. Uh, the most notable of which are, for example, BUSA, Business Unity South Africa, um, as well as the National Planning Commission. Um, And I think these are combinations of a a number of uh, positive proposals by different um, people and organizations. But it seems like there's a growing consensus that we need a national plan uh, to bring on new generation capacity fast And the only new generation capacity that can be delivered in the short term, by that I mean in the next two years, is a combination of wind and solar and battery storage. Um, And uh, this needs to be combined with um, a number of efforts to reduce red tape 
and regulatory hurdles that slow things down at present. And um, I think if one all works together in, um, in solving these problems and removing the blockages, the red tape, the hurdles, um, and putting in place uh, regulations that will actually help and facilitate the process, uh, then we'll make really positive progress. And certainly, that is what the National Planning Commission proposes. Please uh, just enlighten the listeners. Who is preventing the progress that we so desperately need? You know, at one level, there are policy initiatives uh, that are not helpful. There are also uh, regulatory issues, uh, regulations to the various acts of parliament, uh, as well as regulations um, uh, managed by the um, by the regulator, NERSA. And then there, of course, are um, uh, planning hurdles, which are really um, part of the integrated resource plan for electricity and the fact that it is severely out of date. And this is not helpful. In fact, it's a significant risk to South Africa being out of date like this. That's in the hands of the DMRE and its officials who work on the IRP and bring out a new IRP. And lastly, there are um, bureaucratic hurdles um, at, at municipal level and at ESCOM level. And all of these generally serve to hold things back. And I think there is some progress being made. Uh, certainly at NERSA is working to reduce its red tape. So is ESCOM. And I think to some extent municipalities are as well but a lot more can be done. So if you say who is to blame for holding things back, well, it starts at the top, I would say. Uh, the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy is often seen to be looking at every solution except the obvious. Uh, we've seen just recently he's proposing a second national electricity utility, sometimes referred to as Eskom 2.0, um, and this creates a lot of policy uncertainty and doubt in the minds of industrialists, investors, and the general public who really cannot see this as a short-term two-year solution to current load shedding. To set up a new utility, if it was indeed possible at all, is a much longer-term exercise. And most people do not see state-owned enterprises as the solution, bearing in mind the issues that we've seen with South African Airways, Danel, Transnet, Eskom, SABC, and many other state-owned utilities. Uh, people are really skeptical uh, that government has the resources, the financial um, uh, resources necessary, skills, and a managerial capacity uh, to bring in a new uh, ESCOM 2.0, especially if the ESCOM 1.0 is not uh, working properly. Brendan, uh, what would you like to add, or do you perhaps have a question for Chris at this point? Thank you, Ilza. Yes, Chris, I would just like to go back to one of your previous statements. You mentioned wind and solar power. So we hear a lot of energy experts in the media talking about a mixed energy fleet or mix in general. So what exactly does an energy mix mean? And why is it better for South Africa as a country to be reliant on different sources of energy as opposed to, let's say, a single source like coal? Yeah. So at the moment, 
something like 80% of electricity in South Africa is generated from coal. And this presents a huge strategic risk, especially in a world that is moving away from coal, in a world where climate change uh, is top of mind, um, and when uh, financial institutions are withdrawing funding from uh, new coal projects. And not only that, uh, our trading partners are looking at cross-border adjustment tariffs, uh, which will penalize products manufactured in South Africa, goods and services, even minerals, uh, and um, commodities like aluminium that are produced uh, mainly from coal-fired electricity uh, will be seen as high carbon content um, products and services, and they will be subject to cross-border adjustment tariffs, which will make our industries uncompetitive in the world market going forward. So this over-reliance on old coal uh, is strategically posing high risk to South Africa. And we are also seeing the risk from the, the, the level of breakdowns that are occurring. Uh, I mean, there are actually two major risks. Firstly, uh, an over-reliance on coal as primary energy, as I talked about. And secondly, our over-reliance on ESCOM as a generator. And remember, ESCOM is 80% coal-fired power. So to mitigate that risk, uh, one needs to move away from over-dependence on a single generation company like ESCOM towards a more competitive, diversified uh, generation sector. And we, we need not just one electricity generation company, we need literally thousands and thousands. Uh, and when I say that, I'm talking about large, medium-sized and small generators. Large generators can be unbundled ESCOM generators. Uh, Private-public partnerships, uh, generators that are public-private partnership entities, independent power producers, municipal uh, electricity generating entities, and finally, literally thousands of embedded generation within the distribution and transmission grid, wheeling of power across the grid, trading of electricity. All of this serves to create a diversified competitive generation sector that is no longer dependent on a single company as, as it is at the moment. Uh, in terms of the primary energy sources, as I say, we're about 80% dependent on coal, which is presenting a high risk. And we need to move towards uh, lower carbon emission, uh, lower water use, higher job intensity, and least cost energy sources. All of this will help significantly. I'm not suggesting that the future of South Africa is a sudden end to coal-fired power. But when it comes to uh, new generation resources, we don't need more coal-fired power. We actually need more of the other things. And the things that come at least cost, at least CO2 emissions, at least water use, and at most job creation, is this blend of wind and solar and energy storage, either pumped water storage or battery energy storage or even gas to power running at low load fat factors in a balancing mode or in a peaking mode which uses uh, very low quantities of gas and uh, fills in the gaps between the variability of wind and solar to provide reliable 24-hour dispatchable electricity and the, the myth uh, that wind and solar you know cannot provide reliable power well there is some substance in it 
but when combined with flexible generation capacity, then in fact wind and solar plus flexible generation can provide this baseload uh, reliable 24-hour power. Chris, I've got a, a layman's question for you. There's always this grouping that says uh, there's a grouping in South Africa that wants renewables and they will they will cost people their jobs. But you've now twice said that this mix will bring high job intensity. Please explain. If people are not working at coal-fired power stations anymore, what are the job losses there and what new jobs can be created through this energy mix that you've just spoken about? I want to give an analogy of at the turn of the, uh, you know, the beginning of the 20th century when cars started to replace horse-drawn vehicles, horse-drawn carts. Um, a lot of displaced uh, workers took place. So there was huge disruption in the agricultural sector, the people that were producing the hay to feed the horses, the horse breeding sector, the cart manufacturing sector, the drivers of the carts, all of these workers were placed at, at risk and there was a lot of disruption. Uh, similarly, in the electricity sector, there will be displaced jobs. People who used to work in coal mines and who used to work in uh, coal-fired power stations uh, will need to find alternative skills and employment in newly emerging industries, in the manufacturing, uh, installation, construction of wind and solar farms, of battery energy storage plants, in operating and maintaining these um, facilities. And in fact, the area where the most jobs are created in this new electricity environment is in the area of solar rooftop uh, installations on domestic and commercial businesses and uh, houses. So this is where uh, significant people are required to install, to operate, to maintain, uh, and to keep these going. And if you look at the level of jobs created per megawatt hour of electricity generated, you'll find that in fact this uh, uh, solar, wind and renewable energy sector in its broad context, including uh, energy storage, uh, creates by far the most jobs. And uh, this is not just uh, theory, uh, hard statistics around the world show this absolutely clearly, whether it's in the USA, whether it's in Japan, whether it's in Europe, or whether it's in Africa. That's where the future jobs lie. But unfortunately, there will be disruption um, during these transitions. And the goal, of course, is to manage these transitions uh, and to uh, ensure that the transition goes smoothly and that uh, people are not left behind because um, if they are and that we don't attend to this transition in a just way, it will leave festering wounds in the side of South Africa that will come back to haunt us social economic, political wounds. The other reality to bear in mind, of course, is that stable electricity and no load shedding will in any case create more economic opportunities in the country, will lead to more jobs, higher employment and a better society, hopefully, with more social cohesion. Brendan, uh, do you want to come in here with another question for Chris, perhaps? 
Yes, Ilze, thank you. Obviously, the burden of turning this massive ship around cannot be that of Eskom and governments alone. So my question is, where does the private sector come in and what do you envision incentives to be for the private sector to help with the current energy crisis? What, what's in it for the, the big investors out there to, to assist with, with our generation crisis at the moment? Look, in the uh, next two years, public procurement processes are too slow to deliver what has to be done. And just remember, even the public procurement processes that are underway are all built, owned, and operated by the private sector, actually, and financed for that matter. So, although they may be called public procurement processes, the actual work, actual projects, are built and delivered and owned and financed uh, by the private sector. And there is big money involved there, literally billions and billions of rands of investments uh, from both local development finance institutions as well as international DFIs, commercial banks, financial institutions, all play a big role in, in this. But it's all private sector driven, private money. It's not uh, government money. Government is just managing the procurement process. But in the next uh, two years, these public procurement processes are simply too slow to deliver the solutions. So we've seen the risk mitigation IPP program, which was supposed to deliver 2,000 megawatts of new generation capacity on an emergency basis. You know, it was announced by the president in November, sorry, December 2019. Two and a half years later, we haven't even placed the orders, let alone delivered the goods to the grid. So you can get an idea, even an emergency procurement, you know, it takes uh, such a long time. So what can be done in the next two years is literally for customers themselves, customers to become part of the solution by, uh, by deploying embedded generation um, on their own premises, as well as uh, separately from their premises and wheeled across the grid uh, to the point of consumption and uh, trading of electricity. Uh, but again, all of this is going to come from private procurements, not state procurements. So we have the public procurement process, slow and bureaucratic. And here we're talking about the private procurement process, which can deliver much more quickly. And here I'm talking about uh, new generation capacity, so-called embedded generation in uh, the domestic sector, commercial sector, industrial sector, mining, agriculture, and really large industries, process industries like Sassel, South 32, ArcelorMittal, etc. If you look at all of these opportunities, oh, and last but not least, even the municipal sector, uh, you know, is looking to uh, procure energy from IPP. So if you look at all these different sectors, break it down, allocate uh, what can be done, a target to each one of them, one can easily deliver 10,000 megawatts of uh, wind and solar in the next two years. And that's really what the um, various plans are proposing, including the National Planning Commission's plans. Chris, going back to the, the notion of public procurement, we've observed a lot of comments being made by energy experts alike about the red tape that is keeping the process from from going ahead any further. And one of these red tape aspects 
is the notion of localized or local produced content for 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 hooking up these IPPs. Um, have you got any comment on on doing away with with local content? Yeah, firstly, I want to say that I am all for uh, localization of manufacturing wherever it is possible and whether, wherever it makes business sense. The objective of local manufacture, of course, is to provide jobs and industrialization in South Africa and also to establish industries which can serve South Africa well as well as be competitive on the global stage because we cannot just look to the South African market if we want to be um, uh, if we want to operate some of these high-tech industries um, we have to look beyond our borders to Africa and even to global markets so we've got to play to our advantages we've got to look at our competitive advantages and uh, focus on areas where we can add value in a way that is competitive not only to ensure the best prices for the South African market, but also to be competitive globally. And I'm all for that. And what I'm not for, or what I believe is holding things back, is what I call localization by decree, instead of localization that is driven by the market. So localization by decree is when the minister of a trade industry and competition comes out, issues a decree and says, thou shalt have 15% local content in these solar PV panels on this project. Not taking into account the fact that it takes some years to set up these manufacturing facilities, that they require a certain level of demand in order to sustain them going forward. And um, investment decisions are not made on a project by project basis. They are much longer term in nature and they rely on a sustainable market for these products. So uh, simply uh, embarking on localization by decree that is project driven, project by project, uh, is not the right approach. Um, I believe that uh, localization needs to be market driven, both local market driven as well as international market driven. And, um, and they need to provide competitive advantage. And it's, we shouldn't just be localizing any old part of the value chain. We should be very selective uh, in those parts that we can, uh, uh, where it can add to our competitiveness and add value to, to South Africa. Uh, and, and at the moment, there are unfortunately uh, localization requirements which simply cannot be met in the short term and therefore are delaying projects from proceeding because they are prescriptive uh, localization requirements that cannot be actually met in practice. So I'm not suggesting that there should be no localization requirements, but those that are in place should be well considered and should be, should be helpful to South Africa and should not be there uh, you know, uh, if they're going to slow down uh, the delivery of projects in the short term. We need to work on localization in the medium and longer term, but we should not let those issues hold back when we have an emergency on our hands. Chris, uh, can one perhaps say that uh, in the long run, we can work on developing those skills and those uh, industries 
But since this is an emergency uh, situation that it should be temporarily lifted by government, these uh, prohibitive regulations. Absolutely. And I don't even see the localization as just a long-term objective. It can be even a short and a medium-term objective, but in an emergency, uh, it should not be holding things back because, as you earlier pointed out, the jobs that we should be looking at are not just the jobs in the electricity, manufacturing and renewable energy uh, supply chain. Uh, yes, there are job opportunities there, but the much bigger picture is the jobs throughout South Africa. And we need to keep our eye on the ball of the jobs that are being lost as a result of load shedding, both directly and indirectly. Directly, of course, it affects factories and plants that are losing money and are not expanding. And uh, in fact, some of them are laying off people as a result. But there's also the indirect uh, matter of lost investment, lost opportunities, delayed investment. I mean, a mine that might be thinking of sinking a new shaft or a factory, uh, a new cement factory in South Africa, uh, they may consider that they need to wait and see that at the moment the reliability of electricity supply, the price trajectory going forward, uh, the general um, security of supply is simply too risky to make those kind of investments at this point. And so they're holding back. And this holding back has very significant impacts on uh, job opportunities. So uh, really, uh, you know, we, we need to get this right in order to grow the economy, create jobs, create wealth in, in, in South Africa. Uh, and we need to look beyond just the jobs that will be created in the electricity supply industry itself. As a matter of interest to the listeners, uh, in 2021, 400,000 jobs were lost due to uh, unstable electricity supply. According to the Institute for Risk Management, South Africa's latest risk report for 2022, we are currently experiencing the lowest energy level in history. And they say, and this is not out of sources, this is, the, uh, this is a serious report that says load shedding already causes lost economic output of about 700 million rand per stage per day, which works out to approximately 25 billion rand per fortnight uh, in 2021. So, of course, now it's almost double that in 2022. Brendan, what is Alta's view on emergency uh, energy solutions, the plan that Chris has just discussed with us? What does Alta say about this? First off, Ilze, it's very clear from what Chris has told us that this is not something that can be put on government's desk alone. It needs everybody on board. So this includes civil society, the private sector, the big boys out there with the big money. We all need to work together to turn the ship around. And it would be bold of me to state that Alta would bring an, an end to load shedding. That is simply unrealistic. But certainly, Alta will play a big role in engaging with these stakeholders, engaging with, with the relevant government stakeholders in bringing about change in the regulatory environment, 
bringing about change and removing the red tape that needs to be removed in order to to accelerate these projects going forward and generally assist the public or act on behalf of the public to curtail any further tariff increases that's making its way to 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 consumers and uh just just one last food for thought is the only way that we are going to change this whole situation is if we grasp that this energy crisis we are currently facing is is bigger than than just profit margins it it affects every single south african so it is a south african problem it is not a business problem it's not a consumer problem it is a south african problem and because it is such a national crisis we need to work together all hands on deck and and try to to bring about the correct solutions the fastest way possible and i do believe the points raised by chris will certainly help uh, realize realize the stream for south africa chris i have two questions for you um one was iscom's recent uh, it was announced yesterday or over the weekend that they want a 32.6% tariff increase. They are now going to NERSA, National Energy Regulator of South Africa, to get them to agree to raise electricity prices by 32.6%. And on the same day, there was an announcement that they want people uh, who are trying to go off-grid. Solar power users must pay 938 rand per month, even if they don't use our electricity. And that is what ESCOM said. What are your thoughts on on these increases and um, linking up to that? Shouldn't there be more incentives, and not only for businesses, but for private homes to go off grid or to limit the risk, uh, the pressure on the grid? Yeah, I absolutely agree that part of the solution is to bring on as much rooftop solar PV and battery energy storage as possible. I mentioned the case of Vietnam brought on 9,000 megawatts in one year, and that shows what can be done. Instead of penalizing people who are trying to be helpful and bringing their own investments to the table, we should encourage them. There should be incentives, not disincentives. So the kind of incentives that one could put in place can be tax breaks and tax incentives, It can also be what is known as a feed-in tariff, where you encourage people not only to put in um, uh, systems that uh, minimize their grid electricity use, but actually contribute into the grid and get rewarded for doing so uh, through a so-called feed-in tariff. This puts out very strong and clear economic signals. Um, I think the approach, firstly, of simply regarding the customer as the solution to Eskom's financial problems by then putting up the price of electricity by 30% is counterproductive. It's going to accelerate the utility death spiral. It's going to encourage people to look for alternative solutions. And it's not going to have the effect that it's intended to have, that is to bring in more revenue to solve their problems. So I think we should look to customers of electricity to become part of the solution and to compensate them and encourage them and incentivize them. Uh, So I think uh, these current um, ideas that you've mentioned are absolutely counterproductive uh, and will serve uh, 
the wrong purpose completely. Should they declare a state of emergency or a state of disaster? Because there's a bit of controversy around mm-hmm. that. My personal view on this matter is that whether we actually declare a state of emergency is not that important. What we should do is acknowledge that we are actually in a state of emergency, whether we declare it or not. We are in a crisis that requires some emergency or crisis intervention. And those interventions that we've talked about is to mobilize the whole country behind a common vision and a common plan, as well as uh, to lift uh, regulations and policy and planning issues and implementation issues you know, at all levels of uh, government, uh, at, at NERSA, at ESCOM, at municipalities, all of these things that are holding things back. Uh, we need to recognize this is a crisis. Thank you, uh, Chris Yelland. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. Uh, Brendan Slade, Autos uh, Energy Project Manager, thank you for your valuable input as well. And now let's hold thumbs for the presidency's announcement on solutions to this electricity emergency. I'm Ilse Salzwedel, presenter of Outer Insights. If you like Outer's work, please consider donating to them. To do that, simply click on outer.co.za and click on the Join Now button. And if you found the podcast insightful, please share it with your friends.